You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, Genesis 39 is where we are. So if you want to grab your Bible, um, it would really serve you to have that open and uh, for you to be looking at it. Genesis chapter 39. Um, I'm going to start with a verse up on the screen for you. Um, This is straight from the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 26, a reminder straight from his lips to you and I. The reminder goes like this, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Watch and pray. I want you to look at this. Here's the thing. You need to do more than recite this and see this this morning. You need to feel what Jesus is saying here. Watch and pray so that you don't wreck your life. Watch and pray so that you don't open the door of temptation and walk through it. Watch and pray. So I want you to read this with me. It's up on the screen, Genesis 20, or, uh, Matthew 26, verse 41. Read this along with me. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He says to watch. That's a command. More than a reminder, a command. To watch. Watch your soul. Watch what Satan is doing around you. Watch the flesh in you. That, that, those deformed desires in you. You need to watch these things. You need to pray. You need to develop a communion with God where God is satisfying to you, where you're near God. Watch and pray so that you don't enter into temptation, so that you don't walk through the door. Watch and pray. Now embedded into this, these words, this reminder, this command of Jesus is a warning. And the warning goes like this. This is the reason that we need to watch and pray. Because entering into temptation, that, that small little decision to say yes in the moment, that that decision is one step away from disaster for everyone in the room. Like you, me, we are one step away from disaster. In the moment of temptation, we are all one small decision away from wrecking our lives teenager in the room one decision away from wrecking it college student single married empty one decision away from wrecking our lives this is why jesus is saying you need to watch and pray so that you don't enter temptation he's saying this because we actually have a real enemy amen his name's satan the bible would call him a tempter That what Satan does is throw these seductive promises, false promises to us to lure us away from God and towards sin. This is what a temptation is. It's it's the tempter coming and offering you seductive, false promises to lure you away from God and towards sin. That's temptation. And we actually have a real tempter who's doing that in your life and in my life. I love what Russell Moore commenting on this said. He said, the sheer animal force of temptation, the sheer animal force of it, of temptation, ought to remind us all of something, that the universe is demon haunted. You know that? Like like when you 
maybe last night, sat down at the computer and felt the urge to go places you shouldn't have gone, that should remind us of something. That we live in a world, in a universe that is haunted by demon activity, namely of Satan. We should be reminded of that, that we actually have a real enemy that is plotting and planning your absolute destruction and ruin. That we live in that world. And if if you want to know what I think is one of the scariest verses in the Bible, it's in Luke chapter 4, verse 13. This is right after the, we read this passage last week, right after Jesus is tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Do you remember that whole scene in in, in, in Luke 4? He's tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. And then in Luke 4.13, it says this. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed. The devil departed from Jesus until an opportune time. Until the moment was right. Until he could realign everything in Jesus' life where he would be most likely to bring him ruin and wreckage. This is what the Puritans used to call the hour of temptation. The the moment of temptation. At the beginning of this last year, I had the chance to go to Kenya. And I went with a group of 10 or 11 other pastors. We were going with uh, Compassion International. More to come on that in uh, the next year, in April of this next year. We'll we'll fill you in on a few more details about that. But um, So I'm over there, and we're in Nairobi. We're getting to see a lot of the Compassion projects around Nairobi. And then for the last two days of the trip, we got to go to the Masimari um, on on a safari. So we get to see lions, giraffes, elephants, wildebeest, everything you can picture in that setting we were seeing. Incredible beauty, unbelievable. And the place that they took us was really, really nice. So you've got these tents out in the middle of nowhere that that felt like a home. I mean, it was incredibly nice surrounding in the middle of an African safari. And so so on the second day, this was uh, in the evening, about maybe five o'clock, I'm sitting with a group of five or six pastors, and we've got like this deck out, outside, kind of this, in this gathering area, and you've got these incredibly nice swimming pools in the middle of the African bush, this incredible nice swimming pools. We're on this deck that is literally looking over this plain that's got zebras and giraffes and anything you can imagine is right out in front of us. So sitting there with these four or five pastor friends of mine that have grown to be really good friends over the last several years, and all of a sudden, um, we're sitting there talking you know, this, that, and the other, when all of a sudden a scantily clad woman walks up to us. And she says, uh, hey, we, I've got a group of lady friends that are here with me for the next couple of days, and uh, we, we want to invite y'all to come into our tent tonight. Come hang with us in our tent. Now, I mean, first of all, I, did I just hear that right? I mean, did, I, did that really just happen? That, that was my first response. But, but secondly, uh, man, I, I, this was the second thing that just was impressed upon my heart in that moment is, wow, this is how it starts, huh? This, this is how it goes. Now, if, if I could have arranged the moment in my life for that comment to have been said to me, that would probably have been it. If I could have just said, out of all the days, in any of the moments, make it right here in that moment. This would have been the moment. I I have four or five of my best pastor friends around me, really good friends. They they love Jesus, love the church, love me. Um, I mean, it it was probably the safest moment for that to have been spoken into. 
And so in that moment, it didn't feel overly tempting to me. It didn't feel overly seductive. It was fairly easy in that moment, in that context with my friends, and in that moment of, of you know, the week, or in that month, I had strong affections for, for Jesus, and I had strong affections for my wife, so it didn't feel overly tempting. But here's the truth. Sometimes it will. Right? So in that moment, it, it wasn't like this overpowering thing. It was easy for me to see that I, the Proverbs 7 would call this lady a seductress. And people who follow that seductress, they get killed in the end. It was easy for me to see it in that moment. It wasn't for me, and it was a temptation. But in that moment, it wasn't the hour of temptation. See, the hour of temptation is much different. The hour of temptation, you're not with your pastor friends. In the hour of temptation, your affections for Jesus aren't that strong. In the hour of temptation, your affections for your wife aren't that strong. In the hour of temptation, not only do you have the flesh inside of you to deal with these deformed desires in you, but in the hour of temptation, you've got the joining of your deformed desires, the flesh going crazy inside of you, and Satan arranging the opportune situation for that fleshly desires to be carried out. But it wasn't for me in that moment. But I want you to listen to John Owen describe what that moment feels like when it actually is the hour of temptation. When that comment is said at the opportune time in your life. Here's how he describes it. What is the hour of temptation, that opportune time? What, what does that look like? He says it this way. Every great and pressing temptation has its hour. A season where it grows to a head where it is most vigorous and active and operative and prevalent. It may be long in rising, but it has a dangerous hour when most men will enter into it. You see what he's saying? He's saying that, that like in that moment for me, it, was, it, it wasn't overly seductive. In that moment, it wasn't an overpowering temptation. But in the hour of temptation, in the moment of temptation, it feels much different. It feels like it's almost impossible to say no. It feels so seductive that it's almost impossible not to bite the bait. That's the hour of temptation. He, he goes on to say, Hence, that very temptation, which at one time has little or no power on a man, like Kenya, he can despise it, scorn the, the motions of it, easily resist it at another time, at the hour of temptation, at the moment of temptation, it bears him away silent before it. How can we recognize when a temptation has come to its hour? A temptation has come to its hour when it is restless, urgent, and arguing. It is a time of battle, and sin will give the soul no rest. Satan sees his advantage, the convergence of his forces, and knows that he must prevail or be hopeless forever. Satan pushes this opportunity and time of advantage with special pleas and promises. See, in the hour of temptation, you might have a seductive promise, false promise by Satan, or, or in a temptation, but in the hour of temptation, it's an especially attractive one to you. He has taken some ground in his arguments and seeks to gain more. He, and listen to this. In the hour of temptation, he loves to remind us of a full pardon after the sin. That, hey, just do it. Grace will abound. I mean, God's forgiving. 
He's got no problem with that. He'll love you just on the back end, just like he does now. He loves to remind us. It's, it's the Romans 6 thing that, that I'll sin so grace will abound. He realizes that if he does not win now, he will lose the opportunity. When a temptation presses in upon us through our imagination and reason, and when opportunities and advantages press us on the outside, we may know that the hour of its power has come. So in contrast to Kenya, let me put you in the shoes of our man David. Do you remember him in the Bible? David, kind of like Joseph, was, was um, anointed and promised by God to be king one day. And when he was a teenager, and David as a teenager did some really incredible things for God. Do you remember the moment where he, uh, he took care of Goliath with a slingshot? Pretty big moment for him. It gained him a lot of fame within Israel. But it also made Saul very jealous of David. And so Saul, consistently through kind of the narrative of Saul and David, you have Saul gathering his army up with the intent of finding David to kill him because, because Saul was threatened and jealous of David. And in the middle of that, there were two occasions when Saul was trying to kill David, get his army to go kill David, when David could have killed Saul. Now that's a temptation, isn't it? If somebody's trying to kill you, it's a temptation for me to want to kill them, I'll tell you that. And so if I'm David, that's a moment of temptation. But it, that, that moment of temptation where he could have killed Saul gained no traction in David's heart. He didn't. He wouldn't do it. He was satisfied in God in those moments. He was content under the reign and rule of God. He was submissive to God, humble before God, and it gained no traction in his heart when he had those moments. And so, but then Saul ends up dying in a battle, and David is anointed king, and he does some really great things as king. He brings the ark that signified the presence of God back into Jerusalem. But, but not only that, he begins to push back the enemies of Israel. So now he's got relative peace around Israel. And that's where we pick it up in the, at the pinnacle of prosperity. Things are going great for David. I mean, everything is, is structured well. Comfort is at a top. Prosperity is unbelievable. He's successful. And that's where you pick it up in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel out. And they ravaged the Ammonites and, bes and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David rose from his couch. See, this is different than, than him finding Saul in a cave where he could have killed him. This is a, a different ball game. It happened late one afternoon when David rose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. Here was his moment of temptation. The hour of temptation had landed on our man David. Okay, now I need everyone to look at me in the eye here. And here's the truth for all of us. There are going to be a handful of moments where the hour of temptation lands on you. When the deformed desires of your flesh and the distorted desires of your flesh, Satan conspires with those and he arranges the exact perfect circumstance to take advantage of that. And that's coming for you too. 
And here's my hope this morning, is that God might give us an awareness of that. That God might help us see that. That God might help us know that. That God might, this morning, in His grace, prepare your heart for that moment. For the second Samuel moment when He sees a beautiful woman and wants her. That God might prepare you for that. And listen, it could come in a million different ways. That this temptation. But that God would prepare you and me and get us ready when the moment of temptation lands on your life in your heart. That's the angst of the morning. That the God might in his grace meet us this morning in such a way that you would be ready for that. That you would be watching and praying before that. That's the angst. Now Genesis 39 is a really good place for us to learn about this and for us to be exposed to this and for God to prep our hearts in this sort of a way. So Genesis 39. Here's what we have happening in Genesis 39. You get to verse 6, the second half. And you've got this scene in Genesis 39 that should be scary for everyone in the room. And it goes like this. The last half of verse 6, it starts with this. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Verse 7. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. And we talked about this uh, last week, that in Hebrew, that's just a couple of really forceful words. It is like her commanding, like in two words, like down, sex, now. Like that sort of a thing is what the feel of those words in the Hebrew. This is the force of what's happening. And so so here's what I want to do. I want to look at at this verse, specifically this scene, from Miss Potiphar's perspective. And I think it'll kind of walk us through the anatomy of temptation. Like, like what, what it is that makes temptation, temptation. Like, like how it works in our life. And, and so let me just work through this with you. The anatomy of temptation. Temptation starts with vision. With you seeing something. So in this case, we have Miss Potiphar casting her eyes on Joseph. Seeing Joseph. Now it's interesting if you read 2 Samuel chapter 11 with David. Do you know how that story, that saga begins? With him on the, on the roof of the king's palace doing what? Seeing a woman bathing. Do you remember Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve are about to eat the forbidden fruit? How that begins? That saga begins with Eve seeing the fruit. That's how it began with sight. With, with them seeing. Now sight isn't always sinful. I mean, there is a way for it to be sinful, but it's not always sinful. Seeing things aren't sinful. But here's what we need to see about temptation. Is temptation originates in in, in our sight, in our vision, in what we're seeing. And and what sight does is it starts to arouse our desires. Specifically, our sinful desires. That fleshly part of us. When the Bible talks about the flesh, it's talking about the deformed inner desires that we have. The, the, the desires that we have that have been distorted by the effects of sin in us. That's what we're talking about. That, that when we see something, it begins to arouse these sinful desires inside of us. And this is what's happening with Miss Potiphar here. She doesn't just see Joseph. That's not the issue. She now wants Joseph. You see that? So in seeing Joseph, it was what originated in her this desire to want Joseph. It became the occasion to arouse those desires in in her. 
So, so it's not just her seeing, it's, it's that seeing produces a desire for Joseph in her. So you get it in, in this passage when, he, when she talks about that she has cast her eyes on Joseph. That is more than her looking at Joseph or seeing Joseph. That is her lusting after Joseph. See, this is the issue. She saw Joseph and now she is lusting after Joseph. Her desires, these, the flesh in her, those desires have gone awire. They have gone crazy inside of her. Okay, now just think about this for just a second so you're seeing this clearly. What makes you catchable by Satan is not Satan's skill in tempting you. It's the flesh that's inside of you, the deformed desires inside of you. That's what makes you catchable. It wouldn't matter how skillful Satan was if you didn't desire what he was offering. Do you see that? What makes you catchable is your flesh. This is why James chapter 1 verse 14 says this, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. That's when you're tempted. It's when you see and that seeing creates and causes these desires in you to go crazy. To go outside of the way that God would have them go. It's that fleshly, that fleshly thing inside of you. That part of you that's still at war with God. When we're seeing, it's arousing that in us. So you've got sight or vision. It arouses these fleshly desires in Miss Potiphar. And then you've got the imagination. Now, the imagination is often an overlooked part of how temptation works with us. So I, I want to just try to give you a little bit of substance for what happens in your mind with temptation. Your imagination is what provides kind of the place for sin and those desires, that flesh to be nurtured. Your imagination provides the place for your desires to be nurtured. So just think about how this goes and kind of plays out. Your imagination takes what you saw and what you initially desired and it begins to cultivate it. It begins to, to picture it. It begins to see what it would be like to actually carry out those desires. In, in this case, what it would be like to actually have Joseph. Not just to desire him, but to have him. See, in the imagination, here's what begins to happen. We begin to picture what that sin would be like, to imagine what it would be like with those desires. And at the same time, in the imagination, we begin to convince ourselves that we cannot make it without those things. So are you seeing how that works? That your imagination provides the place for sin to be nurtured in that way. See, when, when you have an original, tempt, like an, a temptation comes to you, you see something, uh, something in you starts to leap at it. Here's what should happen inside of us. There should be something happen that would, would sound like this. No, I, no way I would do that. No chance I'm going after that. That is disgusting. That is horrible. But here's what the imagination does. It ponders it for a while. I, I love how the Puritans would say it, it dines with that temptation to where the rough edges of that temptation are knocked off, where the ugliness of that temptation are lost to us. And now all of a sudden we're looking at that temptation with whole new eyes. Now, now we're looking at that temptation as if it is the thing that will satisfy our soul. And listen, that all happens in the imagination. 
that all happens by, by just allowing that to ruminate in our mind, by dining with that temptation in our mind. This is why Paul encourages us in, to, when he's talking to the church in, in Corinth. He encourages us to take our thoughts captive. Do you remember that? This is why. Because the imagination will take sin further. It provides the place for our fleshly desires to be nurtured. So we've got to be really careful what we're thinking about, what we're allowing our mind to do and to say and, and to see. We've got to be very careful with that. So it goes to the imagination, and then we have the occasion. So it starts with sight. Our fleshly desires are aroused. We start to ruminate and dine with that temptation in the imagination. And now all of a sudden, we have the opportunity, the moment to carry out our desires that have been nurtured inside of us. This is the occasion. See, it, think about David and Bathsheba. It took more than those fleshly desires in David and even the imagination of those fleshly desires, the, the nurturing of those fleshly desires. It also took the arrangement of the right circumstances so David could see what he had been imagining carried through. So see, it, it took him actually being powerful enough to where he could send his people to go get Bathsheba, who he just saw taking a shower, and bring her to the palace. It took that occasion. With Miss Potiphar, it's not just that she had lustful desires. She did have those. It's not just that she had the imagination nurturing those desires. It's that she actually had the, the platform to say, Joseph, I want you now. See, it's that occasion. And listen, those occasions are coming for you. They're coming for me. When we're nurturing our fleshly desires— in the imagination, where we're actually picturing ourselves doing what we desire in that way, it's just a matter of time before the skillful angler Satan, the tempter, arranges the right circumstances for you to bite the bait. It's just a matter of time. So he arranges the circumstances to bring about the occasion. And when all of that comes to fruition, sight, fleshly desires stimulated and aroused, the imagination is working for that temptation and the occasion, that's when we have the last step and that's action. That's when Miss Potiphar looks at Joseph and says, lie with me, down, now, sex, let's do this. Do you see what's happening here? It's the progression that gets us all the way to the action. This is the anatomy of temptation. This is how it works in you. This is how it works in me. Now, this is my fear for, for, for this moment, is that the only thing we're going to be thinking about is sexual sin. Because that's not the only way Satan tempts us. That's not the only way it plays out. It could be power for you. It could be place or position for you. It could be the verdict of other people pronounced over you. It could be a possession it's amazing. You take that little list and that little anatomy of temptation and apply that to the last gadget you wanted and watch how you followed that little anatomy. Where you saw something, it aroused a desire for it. You dreamed about it in the imagination. You, you couldn't imagine how you could go without the iPhone. Couldn't imagine it. How could life go on without that thing? And then you had the occasion and you acted on it. So do you see that? Tem Temptation has a million different forms, and we have to be aware of all of those forms in our life. So that's the anatomy. Now I want to turn the corner and talk about this from Joseph's perspective, how he would have viewed this whole scenario and, and what Joseph did. And, and here's what we're going to see portrayed in Joseph is a picture of turning from temptation. What we're going to see in, in these few verses what it looked like for him to turn. 
So starting in verse 8, here's what we've got. So she just said, lie with me. And in verse 8, here is Joseph's response to that temptation. He says this, but he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of my master, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself because you are his wife. And then, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. Here it comes again, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled. He ran out of the house. So let me start here with what Joseph did. When we're talking about turning from temptations, it's a really good picture of, of what that looks like. Tangibly, what it looks like to resist or to turn from it. So, so what did Joseph do? Let me just give you a couple of things. One is he refused. He refused it. His posture toward that sin and that temptation was, there is no way I can do this. No. You might need to just get in your memory those first three words of verse 8. But he refused. But he said no. That there's something that clicked deep in his soul that said, I, I cannot go there. See, his post, this was his posture towards sin. He had a deep resolve of no, I can't do it. N no. And, and I think this is really apt. This idea of refusing sin is really apt to as to what all of, of our posture towards sin should be. Do you remember what Jesus says in Matthew um, chapter 5 when he's talking about lust? He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, you know what you should do? Gouge it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, you know what you should do? You should cut it off. Now, here's what Jesus isn't saying. He's not saying, literally, like if you lusted today, go gouge your eye out. That's not what he's asking. He's not saying, literally, you go cut your arm off like today if that happens. Here's what he's describing. He's using a metaphor to show you what our posture towards sin should be. That, that just, you should be as serious against that sin and refusing it as you would be about gouging out your eye. That's how serious, that's the sort of resolve, that's the sort of posture that we should have towards sin. It says, but he refused. But it, it's not that he, ref, just that he refused. He was also very wise with sin. And very wise with temptation. Especially to the progression of sin. I want you to look at verse 10. I want to just point out one small thing here. Verse 10. It says this. And she, Miss Potiphar, spoke to Joseph day after day. This is continuous. This is ongoing. And it says he would not listen to her. And then look at this last phrase. To lie beside her or to be with her. Okay, so I want you to see what she's doing here. She's saying this. Okay, so if I want him to be with me, if my desire is for him and I want to lie with him, but if he's not going to do that, if I can't just convince him to do that, let me just back off one step and let me just try to throw this out. Let me just try to get him to lay down beside me. So, so we'll just give up on the strategy of the end game of actually... Um, 
like having Joseph, and we'll go one step back and we'll just see if we can get him to lay down beside us. See, she is very in tune to how sin works, isn't she? That if, if she can get Joseph to take two steps, she can probably get him to take three. If she can get Joseph to go this far, she can probably get him to go the, the rest of the distance. See, this is how sin works in all of our lives. It's subtle in this way. If, if we lie down and take that step, we'll probably take the next step as well. In illustrating the progression of sin, I, I threw this illustration out a few years ago. And it takes me all the way back to my days as a ninth grader in high school. That's scary to think about. And in this particular moment, um, I was with our wrestling team and we were going for it like a weekend tournament. So it was a Friday and Saturday night tournament. And uh, so we wrestle on that Friday and then the coach takes us to a hotel room and he looks at me and three of my friends and gives us a key to a hotel room. Does that sound like a bad idea to anyone else? Me and three other ninth grade boys are going to hang out in a hotel room. Okay, so here we are. And on that particular Friday night, I committed what I would call one of like the cardinal mishaps, the most severe like mental lapses that you could ever have with three other guys in a hotel room. I jumped in to take a shower and I didn't lock the door. This is not good. You can probably start to see where this is going. So, uh, so I'm in the shower, uh, you know, I'm starting to wrap up and all of a sudden I hear the terrifying sound of the bathroom door swinging open. And I'm hoping for something that would be normal. Like maybe this is about to be cold water thrown over the top. Maybe it's going to be something along those, those lines. But all of a sudden I look up and there is a cat being thrown over the, 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 the shower little curtain into the shower with me. A cat. It's so funny looking back on that. It's like halfway down, like he's coming over the shower curtain. We, like our eyes meet halfway down. And I'll promise you that cat was as terrified or more terrified than I was. But, but it was interesting after the fact talking about it. And by the way, now you know why I hate cats so much, right? But it was funny after the fact talking about how, like, how do you just catch a cat in the middle of a, a hotel? Like, how does that work? And, uh, and here was their story about that. They said, well, you wouldn't believe it, but this cat was on lockdown mode underneath a vehicle outside the hotel room. And so we see the cat, but we can't get the cat out from under the car. And so all of a sudden, someone had the bright idea that we'll just throw a piece of food out and see if he wants it. And they threw a piece of food out. He moves over. He grabs it and eats it. And then they thought, well, we'll just throw one, one step like closer to us. So they threw it one step closer. He takes one step kind of out from under the car, grabs it, goes back underneath. And then one step further and one step further and one step further. And lurking in the shadows was Casey Moss. I'm still trying to forgive him right now. But lurking in the shadows was Casey Moss. And at one point, the cat was far enough out from under the protective shelter of the car where he was nabbed. Now, let this be a metaphor for what's happening to some of you this morning. That sin is really subtle. And the truth is, many of us in the room this morning have taken multiple steps outside of God's protective care. Multiple steps. 
Like we are down the road of temptation, multiple steps, and we think we're okay. We can't see right now that we are one step away from disaster. One more decision away from wrecking our lives. That, that we, have, we have walked 9, 10, 11 steps down this road, and guess what? You actually have a real enemy plotting your ruin who is lurking in the shadows. You know that? And this morning, you are on the path for that. You are walking in that direction. And I'm just praying by the grace of God that some of us would be woken up to that. That we have taken steps down that road and we are one, two steps away from death down that road. So Joseph is wise with sin and temptation. He knows that one step will mean two steps, will mean ten steps. So, so he says no from the get-go. It's not, hey, I'm not going to actually have sex with you. It's I'm not going to lie with you. I'm not going to listen to you. I'm not doing anything with you. Do you see that? He's wise with this. And then lastly, he ran in the moment of temptation where she is forcing herself upon him. He runs from her. And some of us just need to get this into our mind that sometimes what we need to do with temptation is not to argue with it, not to reason with it, not to give it 10 reasons why it's wrong and you're right, but just to simply run. Just to run. So this is the what he did. But now I want to answer the question of why he did it. Like what is the motive? Like what was happening in him that that moved him away from this, that, that helped him say no to it? And look at verse 8. This is the kind of clue us in. Verse 8, he says this, But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not, he is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you are his wife. All of those are horizontal reasons. He's looking out at people horizontally and saying, here's why I'm not doing it. Because it's going to wreck all things relational. It's going to cause all sorts of disaster. It would be me sinning against Potiphar. He's elevated me in his house. He has put me over his entire house. It would be sin against Potiphar for me to to do this. But it would also be sin against his marriage. I I love what, what Joseph says there at the end. Because you are his wife. I think in that moment, he's trying to remind himself and Miss Potiphar that she's actually married. She actually has a husband, right? He's trying to remind her that that doing this would be sin against their marriage. So, So he's looking at this temptation, and it's all, in this case, it's all horizontal so far. It's him looking at the ravages of sin horizontally in his family, around him. But he's also got vertical reasons. And look at the vertical reasons in verse 9, the second part. He says this, How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? See, it's not just horizontal. If the reason that you don't sin has nothing but horizontal reasons, you'll never stand under temptation. If the reason you don't sin is because you don't want your name sullied and, and soiled, your reputation... It's because you don't want to wreck your family. All of those are reasons, but if that's the reason, there'll be a day when you'll do it. I've said across too many people who are willing to wreck their families for, the, for their sin, said across too many people to know that that, that actually works. It doesn't work. It will never, that will not 
stick with you in the hour of temptation. He had horizontal reasons, the wreckage it would, it would cause, but he also had vertical reasons, that this is sin against God. Do you know that about your sin? That it's never primarily against another person? Joseph's sin was not prime, or this temptation, if he would have bit on it, would not have primarily been against Potiphar or Potiphar's wife. It would have primarily been against God. All sin is primarily against God. Teenager in the room. If you're not respecting and living under the the authority of your parents in a God-honoring way in your house, you know that has nothing to do with your parents and everything to do with sinning against God? People who work in the room, when you're not joyfully living under the authority of the one that God has placed over you in your work, you, you, you know that that's not sinning against them primarily. It's sinning against God, right? It has everything to do with God. You, you know, when, when you sit down and like pornography is so tempting to go someplace on the computer that you know you shouldn't go. And listen, that is men in the room and that is ladies in the room. That is both in the room. In, in that moment, it is not primarily sin against other people. It is primarily sin against God. Like Joseph knew that to do this would actually be sinning against God. Not only would it create all this relational wreckage, it was going to wreck he and God. It was primarily going to be against God. He knew that. But he didn't just know that it was going to be sin against God. He knew how God felt about that sin. Do you see what he calls it? This great wickedness. That he knew God viewed this sin as absolutely wicked. He he could see the sinfulness of sin, that it's evil, that it's wrong, that it's wicked. See, this is what Joseph knew, not just that it was sin against God, but that this sin was wicked in the sight of God. And let me ask you a question. Do, Do you know that about your sin? That in the sight of God, this is how God feels about it? See, before we're ever going to be a people who fight sin, we're going to have to be a people who actually call sin what it is, and that's wicked. See, if we're going to fight it, we've got to know what it is. That it is wickedness before God. That's what it is. See, when we say words like affair, that is so sanitized, isn't it? It's not an affair. It is sin against God that's wicked. That's what it is. See, pornography is not a struggle. It is sin against God that is wicked. A lack of submission is not just, you know, kind of a personality problem. It's a sin against God that is wicked. All of our sin is sin against God that is wicked. In the Old Testament, there's a couple of primary ways that the Bible talks about sin. And the chief way is with the the language of idolatry. That is the primary way the Bible talks about sin. And the chief picture of idolatry in the Old Testament is with this, this word adultery. That is the chief picture over and over. That's how it's referred to. So now think about what is being conveyed there. That our sin to God feels to God like we are committing adultery against God. That's what it feels like. See, adultery is an emotive word, isn't it? Like when I think about my wife sleeping with another man, that is emotive. I'm not indifferent to that. I mean, there's something in me that rises up and is angry at that. There's something in me that hates the thought of that. That I I look at that and I think, that is wickedness. It's wrong, right? 
This is how God thinks about all of our sin. As your wife or husband sleeping with another person, that is how God feels about your sin against him. See, this is why it's wickedness. This is why it's serious. This is what makes sin so sinful. So he not only knew that it was sin against God, but he knew that it was wickedness to God. Because that was the why. He had vertical and horizontal reasons. And now I want to answer the most important question, the, the, the how, like the means. How did Joseph say no? Like if, if you just put yourself in that situation, or you put yourself in the Second Samuel chapter 11 situation, and ask yourself, could you say no in that moment? How do you say no in that moment? And I think we're walked into some really good things that you need to make sure you get here. Because this how question is answered wrongly all the time. So, so you need to make sure you've got a right view of the how. How is it that in the moment of temptation, in the hour of temptation, we say no? How, how is that? How we've classically tried to teach um, how, how this works, it, we've used Greek mythology. So stick with me here and I think it'll be helpful for you. Because there's two primary ways that you can go about answering the how. One is to say, you need to muster up enough willpower so in the moment you can just say no. That's one way to go about it. So it's willpower and, and get your behaviors right so you can say no. The other way to go about it, and the right way, by the way, is not to go the willpower route. There is a reason why the Bible says the flesh is weak. You know that? If you're depending on willpower, you're never going to make it. Willpower is not the, the answer. So it's not willpower and behavior. Instead, it's affections, what we love, and the heart. Th that is how we say no. So let me just illustrate it with this Greek mythology, this situation. So in Greek mythology, we've got this character named uh, Ulysses. And Ulysses is about to take his uh, soldiers on a journey, his, his crew on a journey. And he knows that they are going to pass the infamous island of the Sirens. Now, if you know your Greek mythology, which I wouldn't be offended if you didn't. Um, if you know your Greek mythology, the Sirens were these, uh, these things that had like the face of a woman and the body of, a, of like a bird. So kind of a scary thing here. And when sailors and ships would pass their island, they would sing their seductive song to those sailors. And without fail, those sailors would begin to sail right into those siren songs, those seductive songs, and to their slaughter. Ulysses knew this, so he planned. He was ready for it. So when they came to the island of the sirens, he got out the earplugs. He gave every one of his crew earplugs. Put these in your ears, and you just won't hear the song. And you're going to row like you are rowing for your life. So he gives all of the crew the earplugs, but he doesn't put earplugs in his own ears. Instead, because he wants to hear the songs, he wants to be seduced by the songs, he ties himself to the mass with ropes. So here they come around, uh, around the infamous island. The crew is rowing as hard as they can with earplugs in. And the only reason Ulysses didn't jump out of that boat, swim to the sirens and to his death, is because he was tied to the mast. His soul, everything in him is saying yes to their songs. And the only thing that kept him from dying and giving into it was the ropes. Now, this is how a lot of us try to fight temptation. We love the siren song. 
So we love the song that pornography would sing to us. We love the song that possessions would sing to us. We love the songs that power will sing to us. We love the songs. Our heart is enraptured about it. We love the songs. But all we're going to do is try to get ourselves tied to the mass or to get some earplugs in our ears so we don't hear it. So let me just throw out how this would play out. Let's say pornography is your deal. So we'll get covenant eyes on our computer. We'll make sure that our computer stays in the main room all of which are good ideas. We might even throw our computer away, not even have a computer. And all of those things are tying ourselves to the mast, putting earplugs in our ears. And can I just warn you about this? In the hour of temptation, the ropes are going to break for you. If your goal is just to, for, to give your soul to the song of pornography or of any other temptation and just hope that you can keep yourself tied to the mast, it's just a matter of time before you cave. Now, Jason had a much different approach to this. When he brought his crew around the island of the infamous sirens, he didn't bring earplugs along. He didn't bring any rope along to tie himself or anyone else to the mast. Instead, he brought along Orpheus. And in his day, Orpheus was the most skilled musician on the planet. And so as soon as they came to the infamous island of the sirens, rather than getting the earplugs, the rope, all of that, All he did was look at Orpheus and say, Orpheus, this is your time. Play your best and most beautiful song. And here's what happened. As Orpheus played his superior song, the seductive song of the sirens was drowned out. Okay, now now see how this works. Rather than tying yourself to the mast, this is the way you say no to temptation for the long haul. Jesus has got to start playing a better song for you. Do you see that? See, it's not about you tying yourself to the mast. It's about Jesus becoming more satisfying to you than what temptation is offering you. That's the issue. This is is how you defeat temptation for the long haul. See, this is why um, Psalms 34, 8 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that he's satisfying, that he will actually quench the deepest thirst of your heart, that he actually has a superior song. This is why um, Psalms 1611 says, "At, at his right hand, at God's right hand, are pleasures forevermore. The Bible is trying to, in verses like that, to sing for you the song that will break the back of temptation for you. That's what it's trying to do. It's trying to show you that God is actually offering you a better song. And when we start listening to that song, when that song starts playing for us, that that ironically and weirdly, temptation starts to lose its power over us. See, in Genesis 39, the the theme of the chapter is, is God is with Joseph. That's the theme. That's what the chapter is about. Applied specifically to this temptation, here's what that means. The Lord was with Joseph in a satisfying way. In a way that was so satisfying that the seductive promises of Miss Potiphar were drowned into the background. So so satisfying that all of her seductive promises lost their tempting power. That's why he could say no. I, I love how Matthew... Henry the Old Puritan puts it. He says, yes, joy in the Lord puts our mouths out of taste for the pleasures with which the tempter baits his hook. 
See, if you want to be out of taste for the bait of Satan, here's how you do that. You've got to start tasting and, and seeking to be satisfied in Jesus. That's how you do it. See, there's this common myth that the way you resist temptation is by willpower. That is not the way you resist. The surest way to slay sin and temptation is your soul to be satisfied in the goodness of God. That's how. So it would be natural to maybe say this. Well, how do you do that? How do you get your heart satisfied in God? Listen to these words from John Owen. This is how you do it. This is the how. He he says this. You don't know how to get your heart satisfied in God. This is how you do it. Especially in the moment of temptation. Store up gospel provisions to keep the heart full of a sense of God's love in Christ. That you've got to store up in your heart gospel provisions. Knowing of all that God has done for you in Jesus. You've got to store up provisions of that, he's saying. And his love in the shedding of it. Get a relish, get a sense of store in your heart the privileges we already have. Our adoption, our justification, our acceptance with God. Fill the heart with thoughts of the beauty of his death. And you will, in an ordinary course of walking with God, have great peace and great security as to the as to the disturbance of temptation. You see that? If you want to know what you need in the hour of temptation, you need to have stored in your heart the promises of God, gospel provision for you. Okay, I'm going to end with this. I want to end by getting you to take the long look of temptation. For, for you to consider the long view of temptation, the long look. You know, in the middle of temptation... One of Satan's primary strategies is to minimize the effects of sin before he maximizes it. You know that? Like like to present the door of temptation to you and to promise that behind that door is everything you ever wanted until you open the door and see that there's nothing but wreckage and damage behind it. This is one of Satan's primary strategies for you. It is to tempt you to believe that the effects aren't that bad, that it's, it's not that big of a deal. That the effect, to minimize the effects before he maximizes it. I love what one old Puritan said, Ralph Venning, who wrote a book called The Sinfulness of Sin. He said it this way, sin promises like a God, but pays like a devil. You know that? Temptation promises like a God, but pays like a devil. You know, th- this week, it's, it's been interesting. I've just thought a lot about David and Joseph this week. And, and their stories are such like parallel stories, aren't they? It's almost like the exact same moment happening for both of them, but one caves and the other doesn't. And I want to just invite you to look at the road that both of them walked post-temptation, post post this hour of temptation, this moment of temptation. David gives in, and in the hour of passion, that night of passion, uh, he and Bathsheba, they have a son. She She conceives. And do you remember what happens from then on? As a consequence of that sin, that baby dies. Let that sober you for a second. And then God tells Joseph, or, uh, David that because of this sin, the sword is not going to depart from your house. And if you've read the story forward from there, you know that David's sons killed one another. You know that one of David's sons tried to overthrow his dad David and his kingship and died in the process. And you know, it, it just made me wonder this week of, 
what would a 75-year-old David, a David that's maybe 20, 30, 40 years down the road of that temptation, if he were to be able to come back in time and sit on the roof with a 35 or 40-year-old David, what do you think he would say to him in that moment? What, what do you think he'd say? I, I think he would plead for that 35, 40-year-old David to see the long view, to see what's behind the door. And some of us need that today, to see behind that door of temptation. And I want you to think about Joseph. What lied behind this door of temptation? He said no, and because he said no, just track the story with me. Because he said no, what happened to him? He's thrown into prison. And because he's in prison, he meets uh, the, the Pharaoh's cupbearer and interprets a dream for that cupbearer. And because he interpreted a, for, uh, a dream for that cupbearer, when Pharaoh has a dream that he can get no interpretation for, Joseph is the one called upon to interpret Pharaoh's dream. And because he got a chance to interpret Pharaoh's dream, then he becomes the prime minister of all of Egypt. And because he becomes the prime minister of all of Egypt, he saves the entire Egyptian population from starvation and a famine. And because he's able to save the entire you know, people of Egypt from starvation, he's also able to save his own family, the people of Israel, from starvation in the midst of, of famine. Specifically, his brother Judah. Do you remember Judah's great, 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 great grandson who that would be? Jesus. And, and we've got Jesus who, who actually became the savior of, of the world. And listen, all of that because our man Joseph kept his pants on. You seeing that? So do, do you see why Jesus would say in Matthew 26, watch and pray? I mean, do you see why? Do you, do you see what's down the road of that? Do, do you see how those two roads are different? Do you see why it is that Jesus would command us, plead with his disciples and now us to watch and pray so that you don't enter in? It's because that these things really matter in the end. You saying yes or no in the moment actually matters. Amen? Thank you for listening to this That's message right. from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.